This week, the Down and Nerdy Podcast is brought to you by Claritin D. And shout out to the folks at Claritin who not just sponsored the show, but also provided some samples as well. Tis the season to breathe pollen. Yeah, I've been spending a lot more time outside. Yeah, I can tell those allergies are definitely acting up. I feel stuffy. I feel sluggish. The eyes are starting to water a little bit more. That's why I'm turning to Claritin D. Look, it's definitely helped me relieve my symptoms. It seems to work really, really fast for me as well. It's designed for serious allergy sufferers. Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongestion in your nose so you can breathe better. And hey, I'm noticing a lot of that right now. As a matter of fact, I'm looking forward to be able to enjoy much more outdoor time this spring and summer. A lot of that has to do with Claritin D. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Unfortunately, going to be kind of a somber week this week on episode 240 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. You know the reason for that. It's because the moment that I think that we've dreaded for a long time. It, it's finally happened. Stanley has passed away at the age of 95. You, you've seen so many tributes and people sharing their stories. We're going to continue to do that this week, actually, as we pay tribute to Stanley. Going to talk to some great people. I decided to reach out to some friends and some colleagues. You'll hear from Stephen Scott. You'll also hear from artist Riley Brown. You'll hear from also Vita Ayala, who will give their thoughts on what they, how they felt about Stan Lee and their reaction to his passing and how much that he sort of touched their lives. As a matter of fact, I also got a chance to reach out to Tim Rozon, who plays Doc Holliday on Winona Earp. You can see what he had to say on our website, downandnerdypodcast.com. He was on vacation. It was very nice to answer a few questions via email. If you haven't seen it yet, very inspiring, very touching. Go find that at downandnerdypodcast.com. So, yeah, we're going to be talking about Stan Lee this week. I'll give my thoughts as well on what Stan Lee meant to me a little bit later on in the show. But, you know, Stan would want us to keep talking about comics. So we'll do that next. It's what we're reading on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm Magdalene Massaggio, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Drag out that long box. You could also hit the power button on that tablet or your laptop, whatever you're reading on. It's time for what we're reading, and this is something that I've actually been looking forward to ever since this writer was announced for this book, and that's Wonder Woman number 58 from DC Comics. G. Willow Wilson is the writer on this, and that is one that I've really been looking forward to listen to G. Willow Wilson and how she can tackle this character. Carrie Nord on the pencils, Mick Gray on the inks, Ramula Fajardo Jr. on the colors, and Pat Braseo on the letters. By the way, the cover by Terry and Rachel Dodson, also absolutely amazing. Now, there's essentially in this book two stories really going on, at least in early going anyway. One actually ta- takes place in the Mascara with Hippolyta and some prisoners, and the other takes place in Virginia with Wonder Woman and Steve Trevor sort of living out their lives. 
And the first sees Hippolyta and Philippus actually checking on a couple of prisoners, which if you've been reading Wonder Woman or just DC Comics in general in the last, I would say, year or so, you probably know who these prisoners are, but just in case you haven't, since I try and keep these spoiler-free, I'm not going to spoil who it is. But if you've been keeping up with Wonder Woman, you, you probably already know. Now, the other one has some really nice moments, actually, between Diana and Steve. He's getting ready to head off on another mission. There's a couple of very cute moments there that, that the art team, I think, did a great job bringing to life. And it's just the way that they are together. It just makes you smile when you see the relationship between Steve Trevor and Diana. And I think that Greg Rucka and company captured that so well in their run. And I'm kind of feeling that in this issue as well. And I'm not saying that other creative teams didn't do this well, but I missed that. I felt like that wasn't as there as it was during the Rucker run. And in this book alone, I kind of already feel that coming back a little bit more. So I really, really loved that. Now, there's no surprise that neither situation, neither story I talk about in this book so far is as simple as it looks. It never really is. As as a matter of fact, one of them actually features a very sudden and shocking moment that I really didn't expect. I mean, maybe it's one of those things where you, you could say to yourself, oh, well, I could see that happening sometime down the road, and you could tease that. No, it just happens. And when you see it, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about because it was one of those jaw-dropping moments. I actually think I said, what? Out loud to myself when I was reading this book and saw that. So, now that moment actually leads to an extremely interesting callback in the book later on and towards the end. And actually, it's it's where the story eventually, the two stories eventually converge because of what happens in the, let's call it the Virginia story. And that that's really no surprise once you find out where that part of the story is going. The reaction and what happens after really isn't much of a surprise. And that's not a bad thing. I'm not saying that it's predictable. I'm just saying is that you'd be upset if it didn't go that way. It wouldn't make sense if it didn't go that way. I know I'm being spoiler-free here and, and, and not really giving you much, but you'll understand when you read the book. You know, I was enjoying the book as a whole, but I wasn't sure where the story was going or which would become the focus. Now, the way it shapes up to both converge the way it did really interests me going forward, especially with one of the prisoners from Themyscira specifically and how this is all shaking out towards the end. Now, there are a couple of loose ends that will need to be tied up in these next couple of issues. I will say that much, but I like where this is going. I kind of feel like that's going to happen. You can't tie up everything in the first issue because then that just wouldn't be interesting storytelling, right? So you got to give me a couple of things to wonder about. And I certainly think, no pun intended, this book does that. Absolutely. And also gives you something in a story going forward that you really want to see how it's going to play out. And then you get to the art. And the art focused heavily on the setting of Themyscira at first. But, I mean, you know, it really grew stronger over time. And it's hard not to focus on Themyscira itself when you're there to the surrounding and surroundings. And it's so great and vast and beautiful. And sometimes the actual characters in the panels get lost in the shuffle. But I feel like as we kind of maneuvered on and kind of went underground, the focus went back on the characters and everything was absolutely breathtaking art-wise. Now, I love the spirit that G. Willow Wilson brings to Wonder Woman. And I've always felt like she would be great 
with the character if given the opportunity. And I was absolutely 100% not wrong on that. Really looking forward to seeing where this is going. This is a pull for me. Make sure you're grabbing Wonder Woman 58 from your local shop or digital retailer if you haven't done so already. Here's another book I was really looking forward to for a lot of different reasons, actually. It's Bloodshot Rising Spirit, number one, from Valiant. Ronnie Nadler and Zach Thompson doing the writing. The actual script was done by Kevin Grivio, so keep that in mind. So you got like a trifecta of writing team. Then you got Kevin Lashley on the art, Diego Rodriguez on the colors, Simon Bolin on the letters, and Philippe Masafera with a great, great cover. There's actually quite a few Really, really good covers on this book, but of course the main cover, really, really great as well. Now this book's kind of billed as the quote-unquote true origin of Bloodshot himself. I mean, it's in the title. I mean, it's Project Rising Spirit, right? You know that's where Bloodshot comes from, so Rising Spirit is in the title. That kind of you know, brought him into existence after all. It just kind of makes sense. Now we do get an origin, but it's not quite the one that you might think, and that is what interested me the most about this book. It's really hard to go into any detail without spoiling anything, by the way. I'll do my best. We do get to see the early stages of what happens in Project Rising Spirit and kind of the, again, no pun intended, spirit behind it and what comes in the early stages of any, and think about it, what comes in the early stages of any project? Imagine what happens in the ultimate beta test. If you got to play out the high stakes in real time right before your eyes, how do you think that would go? I mean, think of Fallout 76 is, is, you know, was in beta for a while and it's finally coming out. So, you know, how do you think the, that beta went? Even the best of betas has its issues, right? So just keep that in mind as I talk about this book. Now, I will say that the end of the book will really make you understand what the story is going to be in the early stages or in, in these beginning arcs anyway. And I, again, I can't go into any really great detail without spoiling anything, but there is a character focus here. We get to see the backstory of this character. We get to see how this character gets to the point that they do in the book, and everything will make sense. I know I'm not probably making much sense right now, but it really will make sense as you're reading it in the end, if you're wondering if it's going to pay off as you're reading it in the beginning, yes, it will pay off. And maybe not in the way that you think it will, but it will absolutely pay off. And you'll go, oh, so this is what they're going to do. You're going to have that light bulb moment, I bet you, when you're done reading this book. The art was once once again exceptional throughout. That shouldn't be a surprise for a Valiant book. It seems like they grow on trees there somehow. I, this is a must for any true Bloodshot fan that always wondered what's led up to the present day or how things got to where they were, or at least how they started. This is one that you are going to want to read for sure. Now, I will warn you about one thing. Be prepared for the long game here. There's plenty to love in this first issue, but you could tell that this is not going to be something that's going to kick into high gear in two issues or even three. This is something where you're going to have to enjoy the slow burn and I think you, if you really want to appreciate this book, you absolutely will. If you can enjoy it for what it is in the early going, then I think that you will really, really want to add this to your pull box. I'm not saying that there might not be some frustrating moments. There weren't any for me, certainly not in this first issue. But as a fan, you might get frustrated a little bit early on. 
But don't let that stop you. Don't let that deter you because I think that they've got themselves a winner here. Valiant's got themselves a winner with Bloodshot Rising Spirit number one. Make sure you're picking that up. A couple of different polls this week. I love it when both comics that our review were good. That's going to do it for what we're reading up next. Going to go back to Netflix and the season and season one of Shira and the Princesses of Power is finally here. We'll talk about that with spoilers next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Malcolm Barrett from Timeless, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. For the honor of Grayskull are words that we've been waiting to hear for so, so long. And finally, DreamWorks and Netflix has made that a reality. Shira and the Princesses of Power season one is available now on Netflix. Time to get a little bit spoilery here in my review. Now, again, spoilers from here on out. Just a little bit, though. I'm not going to spoil a whole lot. But there's going to be some that I'm going to have to talk about in order to talk about the first season. Now, I will say that I didn't get through the entire first season, so I'll preface the review with that. And I'm going to be... I think I'll be fair in my review because I kind of I understand where the show's going. I understand about the characters. And that's kind of what I want to talk about because I think that one of the things that this show does well is it's focused on its characters and developing these characters and how they're introduced and really looking like you're building not just for this season but for future seasons and I know I've said on the show before that there's a danger in that you know just assuming that you're going to have more seasons but you're you're building a foundation of relationships here not just for this one season but going forward, and I think that, that that was really important for them to do, and I actually think they did the same thing DreamWorks did when they had Voltron, when that first came out, when that was also very different from its original series, and they just kind of did their own thing and focused on these character-driven stories and the, and the camaraderie between these characters and their relationships within, and that's one of the things that made Voltron so successful. You take that formula and you put it into She-Ra and the Princesses of Power, and it works just as well. Now, if you're not familiar, if you haven't seen the show yet, it basically follows Adora, who, you know, she's an orphan. She was raised by Hordak in the Evil Horde. She doesn't know that they're the Evil Horde until a little bit later on. Let's just say that right now. Now, he rules Etheria, talking about uh, Hordak, and there is a force that is against him, and they're trying to bring him down, and it's the, it's the Princesses' Alliance. Now, the princesses are seen as evil, and there is... By the Horde, anyway. And th- there is something to be said for that, where they're like Ketra at one point was talking about how it uh, was talking about the princesses, and it was very dismissive and basically saying, you know, that they're evil and they, and they they take it for granted and they're spoiled. It was very much a they're spoiled and they don't know what they're doing sort of thing. And and it was very much a a play on how you know princesses are seen in pop culture, and then you kind of turn that on its ear when you actually meet them. And Adora almost represents what, you know, our introduction to that, where she had no idea what the princesses were really like until she meets them and understands. And that's the one thing about Adora that could have been frustrating, but it wasn't, was that, you know, she's raised by Hordak. She doesn't know anything about her past. She doesn't really know anything about the outside world. And then when she gets introduced to this, she those, those prejudices that she had were kind of, Taken away pretty quickly, I would say. And, and once she realizes what was really going on, it's like her ignorance wasn't annoying. It was more blissful than annoying. But in that, you know, she she was very combative in the beginning. But once she realized everything that was going on and realized, I guess the truth is what you what you'd really call it. Once she saw the truth, 
it really kind of turned turn full circle pretty quickly. And one criticism I had of the show early on was, you know, why is she turning on the Horde so quickly? It doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense because this is what she grew up in and she's known Glimmer and Bo for like five seconds. And how could she do that? And they, what I loved was what Noel Stevenson did was address that head on right away in the show where Ketra and, and Adora is they're kind of, I won't say battling because that's not really how it was, but when they, when they confront each other, when Adora has been missing, Ketra actually asks her that and it's addressed and it was a very, very good answer. I'm gonna, I'll be honest. And it made sense. Squash that right away. I love the fact that they did that. And then we get to see her go to Bright Moon. And then, of course, you know, they, you have a horde soldier entering Bright Moon. That's not really going to, and that's really not going to go well. But before I even get to that, how about Glimmer, who is really charming and likable right off the bat, but a little bit ignorant in her own right, right? So it was almost like everybody was sort of learning about life as they went. And Glimmer was, you know, super, super, you know, hyped to try and prove her worth to her mother, Angela, who is the who is the ruler of Bright Moon, and, you know, just trying to keep the world together and fighting against the Horde and the war not going the way that she wants it to go. And and her best friend, Bo, is by her side all the time. And that, that trifecta right there, Glimmer, Bo, and Adora, is something that I really, really loved about the early parts of these episodes. Their chemistry together was just so, so amazing in those early episodes, especially when they're kind of getting to know each other. And Glimmer was judging Adora just as much as Adora was judging Glimmer in the beginning. And, and you understand that, given the fact that, I mean, there's a war here, and you only kind of see one side of who certain people are. And then once you kind of see, once they kind of see each other as just people and not one side or the other that's when they sort of come together i think that might that might really be a hidden powerful message of this show correct me if i'm wrong but that's kind of what i ended up getting out of it is is that relationship and how that sort of went maybe that wasn't one of the messages but that's one of the things that i certainly got out of it and you know adora realizes that the horde was the evil horde and there's people suffering and there's people the the turning point was when she saw them attacking that innocent town that was having that festival and it was like her first party ever and you know everything was amazing to her she sees a horse for the first time and that was amazing that whole horsey thing by the way really really funny when the when we finally get the horse's name and and raz says that you know horsey was a stupid name that was really funny and this show was unintentionally funny for me so many times and i felt the same way about voltron though and again i hate to keep going back to that but it's made by the same people and it seems like you know, they have found a formula at DreamWorks that works for these revival series. And while it's probably not going to work every time, it certainly worked these two times. And there are very there are a lot of differences between the two shows. But the similarities are also really, really important and one of the reasons that I really like this show. And I love that it's an origin story too for Adora. That's not again not annoying and not repetitive. It's done differently, and there's a little bit of stumbling along the way of, of her trying to learn how to use the sword of power and just understand who she is and her lineage and where she really came from. And that can you know, and that's been done so many times ad nauseum, really, for so many characters. But then when you see it unfold in Shira, it's it really really ends up working. And the fact that 
You know, like her being accepted in Bright Moon right away. And her being, that was explained. Everything that seemed like it shouldn't, that it should have taken a little bit longer was explained right away and made you go, okay. And then you just didn't think about it anymore. So one of the things that the show did really well, I think, was plug plot holes quickly. Don't let it drag on. And that's, again, a credit to Noel Stevenson and the writing team that really took hold of this and and just wanted you to focus on these characters and on this pretty simple story to follow, I think, and the fact that you're not throwing princesses at us like 60 princesses at once. You're allowing each princess to sort of get the, not really, really get their spotlight, but you're introducing us slowly to them and you're finding out, okay, this is the princess's alliance right here that's going to go after Hordak. And, and we're getting each of those and at least, if if not individually in small batches anyway, from what I saw. So I, I love that they did that as well. But one of my favorite episodes early on was with Raz, voiced by the wonderful Gray Griffin, who was, again, amazing in this. And that was kind of Adora's turning point. Just like, I know who I am. I know what I need to do. I know what my focus should be. Let's go after the Horde. Let's join the Princesses Alliance, and this is how we're going to do it. That was her light bulb moment. Right there, and I think that was my one of my favorite episodes because of that, and because just Raz was so enjoyable. I, I get a Raz spinoff series, you know, maybe a few episodes, four or five episodes. I think that would be great. I think that'll be fun, and maybe I'm crazy, but I I could definitely do with seeing more Raz. There's no question about that. But the voice cast does such a good job. The animation not perfect. I think most of the character designs are very very good. Animation not perfect by any stretch. I love the. You know, you've got to give credit too to the story of, of Ketra as well because, you know, she's lost her best friend essentially. And she's also lost, you know, her 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 alliance in the horde has been shaken at this point. And she's also starting to see things differently. So everything she knows she's lost. And how do you kind of expect her to feel about that towards Adora and towards the horde, for, for quite frankly? So seeing where that's going. It's just done very, very well. And again, this show is not perfect by any stretch, but there's so much of it to like. It's for all ages, all genders. I think that the the diversity of the cast is done very, very well. Certainly didn't feel forced at all. It just felt like it, it was felt very natural and it felt together. That was one thing. That was my theme of the show, I think, was togetherness. Everybody felt together and there definitely was an alliance there and nothing felt forced. Nothing felt like it was too much. It was lighthearted, it was funny, and it was a very different take on the original, which I th- think is exactly what they needed to do. And I, again, this is another winner for DreamWorks, whereas they did a great job in reimagining Voltron. They took their time and they did it right here as well. Shira and the Princesses of Power, definitely one I'm hoping to see continue for a long, long time. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of She-Ra and the Princesses of Power Season 1 on Netflix. Up next, let's talk about some nerd news and a couple of pretty big convention stories we'll do next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Ray Chase, the voice of Noctis in Final Fantasy XV, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Looks like our E3 recap this year just got a little lighter because it's time for nerd news. And the reason I say that is some pretty big news that broke this past week, and that is that Sony is dropping out of E3. They are not coming back. Now, I want to read this 
quote that Sony had to Game Informer in an interview. I want to actually read their response to not being at E3 this year. I'm going to read it word for word, which is something I don't normally do, but I'm going to do that. They say, As the industry evolves, Sony Interactive Entertainment continues to look for inventive opportunities to engage the community. PlayStation fans mean the world to us, and we always want to innovate, think differently, and experiment with new ways to delight gamers. As a result, we have decided not to participate in E3 in 2019. We are exploring new and familiar ways to engage our community in 2019 and can't wait to share our plans with you. That's fine. But that also tells me they've got nothing. That's what that tells me. And they know that early on. They have no PS5. It also tells me that they've got three games that they have no release date for. And you can't bring Death Stranding back to E3 again this year. I'm sorry. You just can't. It seems like Death Stranding's been at the last six E3s. I mean, even EA is going to finally release Anthem which also seems like it's been at E3 forever. You cannot bring that game back to E3, especially if you don't have a release date for it. Last of Us 2 is fine. That was their that was their hit game in the 2018 E3, as far as I'm concerned, other than Spider-Man, of course, but that was you knew that was coming out imminently. But that was the one to look, for, to look forward to, right? Was Last of Us 2. And, but if you've got no information and you've got no news on PS5, you're you're going to flop just like you did at E3 this past year. I think that you remember, if you don't remember my review of E3 last year, go back to our E3 recap show. Sony's E3 presentation was clunky. It was horrible. And it was at times just uncomfortable to watch. You know, they're cutting back to this other live shot and they're switching locations and it should have been cool and it just wasn't. It was just, it was weird. And then you mix everything else in, and it's like, yeah, okay, all right, well, whatever. And there, while there were a couple of cool games, they didn't have that wow factor that they usually did, and they were bypassed by smaller studios, quite frankly. Never mind Xbox and Microsoft or, or Nintendo. They were bypassed by smaller places like Ubisoft, who had a, who had a good E3, and, and Bethesda, to a certain extent, who had a good E3 as well. I mean... If you don't have a splash, what are you doing there? And and I mean, maybe this is a sign that Xbox just has an amazing line of exclusives lined up for this year, and they know it. You know, Nintendo is still on the rise. Maybe PlayStation just backed virtual reality, virtual reality a little bit too hard, and now they're trying to figure out how to recover from that. Because I'm not, I'm thinking it's not really working out too well. I mean, I don't have any hard numbers in front of me, but I don't know a whole lot of gamers that I'm talking to that are that are heavy on VR. So, I mean, a lot of the talk is around Fortnite and, and a bunch of other things. And, and, of course, for good reason, Red Dead 2 and, and all the games of the year candidates like Spider-Man, God of War. There's not a lot of talk about VR, and I feel like PlayStation went heavy on that, and it's just not winning. But you know who else isn't winning? E3. Because if you think about it, EA kind of already does their own thing, right, before E3 as far as press conferences are concerned. Nintendo's been doing their pre-recorded thing for a while now. I mean, even PlayStation was doing a, 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 their own kind of presentation before E3 or after E3. They're not doing that this year either, apparently. The PlayStation Experience, I think it's called, they're not doing that either. So something is really, really wrong with what's going on at Sony. And, and I kind of said during my recap this year, feels like there's a chink in the armor 
It feels like there's a, the wound is exposed a little bit here at Sony. and you, you took it for granted. You were so high on top with no competition whatsoever. And then Nintendo ends up having a hit with the Switch. You've also got Xbox who put out their new console that's not doing badly, by the way. And they've got a pretty good list of exclusive games themselves. It's not like they've got garbage that they're putting out, plus all the games that are on multiple platforms. And Sony just took for granted, I think, like, hey, we're the king. Nobody's ever going to touch us. And then all of a sudden, somebody starts storming the castle walls, and you're sitting there sleeping. Or you're. it's like the Bud Light commercial, where they've got the guy who comes out and, you know, he's criticizing everything about their castle. And the queen looks at the guy and says, why do we invite them? He's like, we're storming the castle. We needed a distraction. Well, guess what, Sony? Your castle's being stormed, and you've been distracted for way too long. Hopefully, you figure out a way to get it together and make yourselves known again because you're about to your competition's getting a lot a lot closer while you weren't paying attention and for gamers I think it's good for us because it's going to make them really really start to try a little bit harder again and I don't think that there's anything wrong with that speaking of conventions let's talk about San Diego Comic-Con the 50th anniversary is going to be coming up And it looks like Warner Brothers is taking the go big or go home approach because now it looks like Warner Brothers and DC have announced that they are going to have just one huge booth at San Diego Comic-Con this year. So I'm going to take this from two perspectives as somebody who's been to Comic-Con the last couple of years and walked the floor many, many times. It's understandable from a logistical standpoint for the company itself, for Warner Brothers. You want to get your TV and movie fans closer to the comics that these products come from. And, you know, that, that's that's noble in that, you know, you want everything. You want fans to be able to experience everything that's involved with your brand, not just, well, you the Warner Brothers booth is here, the DC booth is here, and you can go to either or. Well, now they're going to put them all together, and you'll be able to just walk around one giant booth. So I get it from that perspective, and, and it, it certainly makes sense. And there's certainly always a crowd at the Warner Brothers booth, and there's a pretty big crowd at the DC booth as well, but one's off to the side near the wall, near the back wall there, and one is usually in the middle of the floor for anybody that has not been to San Diego Comic-Con. To me, this might be a little bit of a nightmare, and I'll tell you why. The The Warner Brothers booth is often very crowded, not necessarily on the inside because they do giveaways a lot, but there's always kind of a log jam around that area anyway. When they're doing signings, it's a nightmare. You can't get close because everybody, even that isn't in line for the signing, wants to see the stars. They want to take pictures. Not that they don't have signings at the DC booth either. There's some pretty big signings always at the DC booth. They've had, you know, um, Justice League cast has been there. You've got some big name writers like Tom King and company. You've even got a couple of other signings that they do there that are ticketed that are fairly large. I'm not saying that the DC booth doesn't have any signings that jam up the booth, but the DC booth is always very open. It was always very welcome and inviting. Even though there was a ton of stuff to see there, there wasn't a lot of log jam. It was right in the middle of the convention hall. It had its own space and its own area, and it lived in that own space. And, you know, there were demos on the stage that you would see from artists from time to time, and they would do other things there. And it was a, I, the DC booth was always one of my favorite booths at San Diego Comic-Con. And now you put that together with the Warner Brothers booth. And think about it. If there's a signing for Arrow or something and you've just got this giant log jam around that booth, 
it's going to make certain fans go, you know what, I'll come back to the DC booth later because it seems pretty crowded over there. And they might not. You want people circling back to your booth as much as possible or spending as much time in your booth as much as possible. But when that convention hall gets jammed up, when certain things are going on, and this is true of other booths as well, Marvel's especially, where you can create a log jam in the walkways and as hard as the convention staff tries during the con, it's really hard to keep people moving and get that line through. It's not as easy. It's not very easy at all. So there's going to be a log jam and it might make it so there's actually less traffic at the DC booth than you would think that there might be. So a couple of things are very, very important. Where this mega booth is placed is extremely important. I'm not sure you want to go by that back wall because the other places that you got Funko that's usually right there. You've got a couple of other things. I mean, the, the AMC booth with The Walking Dead isn't usually that far away. You've got all basically all the comic, the smaller publishers like Boom Studios and IDW. They're usually back there. And, you know, those are popular booths as well. And so Warner Brothers is positioned around some popular booths already. And that could create a jam. But can you also now put it in the middle where the DC booth usually is? Because... Then you've got the jam up of where Marvel is and a couple of other booths. The image booth is usually pretty close to DC as well. There's, I guess there's a log jam no matter where you go. But I think where you place this booth is going to be hugely important as to whether or not this is going to work out. And how you separate the two. Because you really kind of have to separate the two. Even though it's going to be one giant booth, you're going to have to have one live in one space and one live in the other. Because you want that comics portion to be accessible for your comic book fans, especially like myself. I like being able to go over to the Warner Brothers booth and experience the entertainment side, but also go to the DC booth and experience the comic book side as well. And this isn't the first time that DC and Warner Brothers have played nice together. They had the DC and DC event not too long ago, and that encompassed comics and the movies and TV, mostly TV and comics, and it really worked together quite well. And it was an event that showcased both halves and it was put together quite nicely. But that was there. That was all encompassed by them. This is San Diego Comic-Con. It's a different animal. So translating that back to that, I think, might be a little bit more difficult than they think. Quickly, I want to talk about a couple of trailers that dropped this week. You, had, you have Detective Pikachu, which, of course, is going to be coming out on May the 10th of 2019. Justice Smith and Ryan Reynolds. Of course, Ryan Reynolds voicing Pikachu himself. Looks like the plot's going to be pretty similar, actually, to the Detective Pikachu 20, 2016 3DS game where, you know, Justice Smith's character, Tim, is the only one that can understand Pikachu when he's talking and Timmy's looking for his dad. I call him Timmy just because I think it's funny. Um, he's looking for his dad and Pikachu's offered to help him and you kind of see the storyline Go from there. Ryan Reynolds voicing Detective Pikachu, who's kind of gruff in the game, if I remember right. It's really perfect. It's sarcastic. It's funny. I think that Justice Smith plays his role very, very well. Also, if I remember him right from the last Jurassic World movie, did did a very, very good job, I thought, there as well. So, I mean... <sighs> It looks like it could be fun, but as somebody, again, I didn't really grow up on Pokemon. That sort of passed me by. So for me to say that I'm a sh that I'm super familiar with Pokemon, I can't say that. I, I mean, I'll be honest. I watched the trailers, and without Googling most of these characters, I wouldn't know who most of them are. Maybe I shouldn't even be talking about this. But it's interesting because this is going to be a huge release 
next year. And the question for somebody like me is coming from the outside, and again, anybody that's a Pokemon fan, you think the brand is big enough that you don't need me and people like me that don't know about the movie. I disagree. While you will make this movie a ton of money, if you want more of this and you want to be more successful, you need to draw in people that don't really know a lot about the brand. You need to draw in those new fans. You always want to draw in new fans. Will this do that? I kind of think it will based on what I've seen from this trailer. It's just that I won't be able to appreciate it on the same level as you will being a huge Pokemon fan. But will I become a Pokemon fan because of this? As a matter of fact, take Fantastic Beasts, for example, Crimes of Grindelwald. I was never really a huge Harry Potter fan. Again, that was another fandom that passed me by. But I liked the first Fantastic Beasts movie. I'm going to be seeing Crimes of Grindelwald as well. And this makes me kind of want to give Harry Potter a shot, go back, give it another chance. So that's what I think you want this to do. You want something like Detective Pikachu to want fans to reach out more and learn more about it and to want more of these movies and more of this entertainment, don't you? I think that you kind of do. Another thing that we saw a trailer for was Toy Story 4. There's been a lot of talk about how emotional it's going to be and the cast talking about how, you know, it was really difficult for them to get through the read and how the movie's going to be so emotional. And we see the new toy, Forky, being introduced to Bonnie's world. And it looks like Forky's going to kind of, based on this teaser trailer, you know, kind of throw a wrench in the in the family atmosphere of the toys, let's just say, Woody and company, where you see the like the, the circle that they've got going on, and, you know, the dancing around the circle. And then here comes Forky saying, I don't belong here. And all of a sudden, you know, kind of breaking the circle sort of thing, and everybody's falling all over the place. And that is basically the crux of what the story is going to be, is that, you know, this is a toy that doesn't think that they belong or that doesn't even think that they are a toy. And I think that that's going to be the interesting part of the story is Forky, is that, is this a toy or isn't it? Or does this represent something else entirely? And I think that that's where the story is going to live or die, is that how, what does this character represent exactly? But again, I'm just worried that this is a movie that didn't need to be made in the first place. I thought the Toy Story 3 kind of ended in the perfect way you'd want it to end, right? And now we're doing another one. I'm just hoping this doesn't feel like a sequel that shouldn't have been done and extended a franchise that didn't really need to be extended other than for the cash register sound that you hear. You know, this little cha-ching sound effect? Yeah, that's the thing that I'm worried about is that this is a money grab, but only time will tell. Now, speaking of Disney and The Mandalorian, which is going to be coming to Disney+, Plus, the streaming service Variety is reporting they've found their leading man, and that's Pedro Pascal of Game of Thrones is going to play the title role. But here's the deal. We don't we still don't really know really much about that other than the original synopsis that we got from Jon Favreau and that it takes place sometime after the fall of the Empire but before the First Order. We know it kind of takes place way far away from the action of all that fighting. It's a lone gunman type of story. And now apparently this lone gunman though, might not be so lone because now we're hearing rumors that Carl Weathers might be cast. Gina Carano was just cast as well to be a part of the show. So the cast is certainly growing. And I'm really stoked for this because I think we could see how successful we could be once you kind of venture out a little bit from the Skywalker saga and try to tell a different story. And I think that's what Star Wars fans have been waiting for, right? Tell me a different story. And I think The Mandalorian is going to do that. And give, and it's being given the freedom on the Disney Plus streaming service that I think you need for something like this where you could take a few risks and talk about characters that aren't well-known or aren't known at all. 
in the Star Wars universe and maybe introduce a few new ones to us as well. I think that if you're going to take a risk, you might as well do it with this. And I think that this is one that's really, really going to pay off. And John Favreau being involved makes me even more excited for this. And hopefully we get a little bit more information here on this as things go. And maybe some of the set photos will actually reveal a little bit more once those start coming out. Before we get to our Stan Lee tribute, just a couple more notes. Game of Thrones final season is going to be premiering in April of 2019. Again, they're very, very tight-lipped about that, so we're really probably not going to find out a whole lot other than the fact that all of the episodes are going to be over an hour long. Not much, we're pretty much guaranteed. The other thing is that PUBG is going to be coming to PlayStation. A little bit of good news for the PS4 and PlayStation fans. December the 7th is when PUBG going to be available there as well. So a couple of the very popular online games, both now going to be available on PlayStation 4. That's going to do it for Nerd News this week. Up next, going to talk about Stan Lee, remembering him and his life with a few special guests. And I'll give you my thoughts as well next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. This is Tim Rozon from Winona Earth on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Unfortunately, a bit of sad circumstances this week on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Of course, you know, Stanley passed away at the age of 95 this past week. So when it comes to me, you know, the first thing I want to do is like, how do I honor the man? How do I possibly even put into words what this man has meant to not just me, but so many people and just fans, people in the industry. So I started to gather up a list of friends and I thought, you know, who better to ask than people that are in the business and that maybe have worked with Stan or been inspired by Stan. And this one of the first guys I thought of, he's been a good friend of mine, good friend of the show for a while now. He's a, he's been a writer. He's been on the inside of the business. It's Steven Scott. Steven, how you doing, man? I'm good. How are you, James? I'm doing really, really good. Now, I mean, I, I wish we were talking to each other on better circumstances, but I know that, you know, as someone who's been a writer, you, you started off as a, as a writer, and then you actually you were in the comics PR game for a while. If, no, if nobody knows a whole lot about your career, now you're back writing again, doing a project with George Takei, actually. They call this Enemies for Top Shelf. So as a writer, what has Stan Lee meant to you in your career overall? I mean, before I was a writer, I was a fan. I think like a lot of us, I, I grew up on Marvel Comics. I was, uh, I had a huge collection. I, you know, Stan Lee has been a huge figure to me for most of my life. Uh, every comic I would crack open, it would say Stan Lee Presents, you know, right there in the title. And those three words really informed so much of who I would become and who I am today. Uh, you know, when I was maybe nine or ten and I first began drawing my own comics and inventing my own superheroes uh, because I wanted to be like Stan. I used to uh, come up with these elaborate logos for the heroes and right above the logo I would write Stan Lee Presents because to me those words were synonymous with comics. Absolutely. What do you think it was about Stan and the way that created characters that made it so special? Because it seems to me like there was just something different about when Stan created a character, whether it was like a Spider-Man or even a secondary character, because it seemed like every character mattered. 
I think a lot of people have touched on this, but it's really the, the humanity and the characters that he injected into them. You could relate to them on a human level. You were just as interested in what was going on in their everyday drama when they weren't wearing the mask as you were when they were doing these amazing feats and rescuing people and saving the day. You know, just there was uh, just as much drama happening, you know, you know, in this, in the halls of, of Peter's high school, you know, with Mary Jane or, you know, trying to avoid getting beat up that day or whatever the case may be. You know, it's funny, too, because I was thinking about this earlier today and, and it was like, it's not just the memories that Stan created for me. It's not just the stories that he created in the characters, but, but the fact that he was always available for his fans. I mean, mm-hmm. the guy was 95 and he would still do cons almost up until his dying day. He was doing events. Talk about how rare that really is in this business. Yeah, he loved his fans. I think he really knew how much he he owed to them. You know, his his whole career. Just if it weren't for you know this uh, this you know movement that he created, he had a role in shepherding, uh, getting all these fans behind you know Marvel superheroes and what was happening with you know, the latest X-Men story or Spider-Man, you know, he was just always at the front of that and pulling people in. So I think he was very much a people person. He was good at communicating ideas. That was really his great gift. You know, he was obviously brilliant at coming up with, um, you know, co-creating so many iconic characters, but being able to message that to the world, uh, you know, he he just felt like a distant relative, you know, I think to a oh, lot yeah, of Oh, definitely, yeah. Yeah, because he just kind of—he was so inviting, you know, just welcoming us into this world. Um, it, it, you know, really hit me because I've been thinking a lot about him, obviously, the past couple of days uh, since it was announced that he passed, and it really occurred to me as I'm scrolling through, you know, all the tributes and remembrances of Stan as uh, people are weighing in or showing, sharing pictures with him and stuff, and their memories of him. He really fostered this community, which we're all a part of, and. And while we may not all have known him personally, he still brought so many of us together. I can only imagine how different my life would have turned out, you know, or, or who, which people I would call friends today, if not for Stanley's imagination and vision. Absolutely. I think that, that hits the nail right on the head is that how many relationships would, would we not have? How many people, how many stories would we not have been exposed to? And even, I mean, it's not even overstating it, I don't think, Stevens, that culturally, I mean, where would we be? Without these stories, I think a lot. I think a lot of things, whether they were comic book related or not, were touched by Stan Lee. Mm, yeah, he changed the world, um, and he, you know, he started off, you know, kind of in a grassroots level. You know, he he was able to kind of just, you know, get up on that soapbox. You know, he had Stan's soapbox in the comics. Mm-hmm. You know, it was that voice. You know, that connection to, you know, it's like Stan's our man on the inside. You know, he's telling us all the, you know, juicy stuff about what's what's going to happen next, and you know, he also, I don't know if you remember these, he would narrate these old, the old animated uh, Marvel shows they would put together. Like, I have these old animated VHS tapes that told the origin stories of the Marvel superheroes. And so it's basically taking the old artwork from, like, the first Captain America, the origin of Captain America or Spider-Man or whoever, the Hulk, and cutting it up. It's, like, almost the first motion comics. And yeah, would- yeah. They would add voices to them and sound effects, and he would narrate them. So it was like, you know, Stanley's in my home, you know, kind of like introducing me to a whole new universe and 
you know, I was ready to be taken along for the ride. Like anytime, you know, Stan was involved, it's like that, you know, Stanley presents. It was like his seal of approval that you knew anything with his name on it, you were in for an entertaining time. And one of the things that I've always, that always keeps me moving anyway, is that I look at Stan and one of the things that, some, one of the things that a lot of people don't realize that haven't been, you know, like really in depth into Stan's life was that he almost walked away from comics before writing Fantastic Four number one. As a matter of fact, he didn't even create a lot of his biggest characters until he was about 40 years old. And, and mm-hmm. that, to me, is, is baffling as somebody who is almost 40 years old. And then I think about something that, and I'm going to embarrass you a little bit here just for a second. As somebody who was a writer when you, when you kind of first started, and then you went into comics PR, and then one day you just decided, you know what? I'm going to devote myself to this writing thing because this is what I want to do. How much was Stan Lee a part of that decision for you? I'm sure, you know, at the core of it, you know, that because that is who I, I emulated. That's who I wanted to be. You know, when I grew up, it was, you know, I, I wasn't thinking to myself when I was, you know, 10 years old reading these comics, like, oh, I can't wait to promote these one day. Like, I wanted to be the one creating the stories and coming up with the characters and the ideas and doing exactly what he did and and made uh, you know and entertained so many of us in in the process and so you know for me uh you know I told my mom at that time you know I'm going to grow up one day to become a writer and artist for Marvel I'm moved to New York City and she just kind of you know was very uh, patient with me and was just like okay that sounds nice you know we'll see. <laughs> as as parents oh, often do <laughs> yeah you know so but she never, you know, tried to crush my dream. She was always very encouraging of me, you know, following my my passions, uh, which led me to this point. And so when I got the opportunity to intern at Marvel, uh, which was my really my first uh, foot in the door in the industry, it was huge for me. It was, you know, I couldn't believe going into that building every day. I know it wasn't the original Marvel building, but it still felt like, you know, so much history has happened in these halls. Like, this is where comics you know history is being made so it was just it you know that feeling just overwhelmed me like I just couldn't wait to wake up and and go into the office every day so now I have to ask because everybody seems to be sharing their Stan Lee story do you have a Stan Lee story but if if you don't what do you think his biggest contribution to the industry really was hmm well to answer your first question um yeah I didn't have too many like you know, I didn't never had like a one-on-one uh, interaction with Stan, so I I don't have I've heard people tell some really good Stanley stories. I don't have a really good one, but you know, the thing I I loved about him is just, and that is now sad because you know I hated the fact that we were waking up to a world without Stanley. That just felt really sad to me uh, because I you know even though I didn't know him personally, like I said before, he, he did kind of feel like a relative, like you know we we all knew him through, you know, him being out there and so vocal about the comics community and championing it to the world. And so I would love seeing him, you know, in the halls of Comic-Con. You always could see him coming from a mile away because mm-hmm. he always drew a huge crowd. Like whenever there was, back in the day, it wasn't, uh, you know, Ben Affleck or Jason Momoa. It was Stan Lee who was drawing, you know, you know, swarms of people. I remember when I was at the Archie booth one year because we were publishing Stanley's Mighty Seven with him, and he came by the booth for just like a photo op and to do like sign some posters for us, and so he came with his entourage. But I remember noticing all of a sudden that so many people were just surrounding the booth. It was just like all of a sudden our booth <laughs> just was 
attracting so many so much attention and then as soon as I look up and I see Stan it all makes sense I'm just like oh of course um but yeah you could always I, I just I'll miss seeing him in the halls just walking around from panel to panel I remember I sat on a panel not on the panel I was in attending one that he sat on and a fan went up to the mic and you know nobody wanted to talk to anybody else on that panel they were right. all there man <laughs> so of course yeah, so he his question, of course, is directed to Stan, and he's saying to him like, "Stan, you're my god. I idolize you. I just I worship you." Like he just he couldn't even that would, he didn't have a question. I think he just wanted to let Stan know how much he meant to him, and and it was kind of in that moment that you know I you know because we've all geeked out like that. Oh, um, absolutely. And I think that's probably why I never, you know, put myself in a position or wanted to get too close to Stan. Like if it happened organically, great, but. Um, I just knew I would turn into that that fanboy where I wouldn't be able to, um, <laughs> you know, what do you say to a guy like that that he hasn't already said a million times, like, you know, how much his work has meant to me and, and shaped my my viewpoint on life and my career and everything. Like, yeah, he he, he had a, a huge impact, whether or not he, know, he knew it. Uh, I'm sure he did. I'm sure he knew how much he meant to so many different people. There's been so many great writers in this business there's been so many great creators of characters in this business but for some reason stan lee seems to stand out so much head above all of them why would you say that is he's just um the face of comics for so many people if you like i was telling a friend right before we were talking uh if you know one comic book creator if you know you know anybody's name who's associated with you know marvel comics like you know stanley like that's the first name i'm sure that comes to mind for for many people who you know didn't necessarily grow up reading comics but they've now in the last couple decades become a lot more familiar with uh his creations uh with the movies with you know, Spider-Man ruling the box office with just the Avengers, just all, you know, everything that's happened that he's, I think that he always kind of knew the potential of these characters. He, he could envision it. And then finally, you know, Hollywood caught up to speed and they, they, they saw the potential too. And now it's this, it's the biggest franchise in the world. And, and I think that that, you know, that speaks volumes because there's so many people now that, you know, they know if they know him from the cameos, they at least know that he is. You know, he is comics. You know, he he represents that for for so many people that I I think he yeah that's why it is it is a huge loss. Even as I'm speaking about it, it just kind of really you know the impact of that loss is really starting to sink in. You know, we're st- I think we're still in that that period of mourning where we're not. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's, it's just it's hard to really. Uh, put into words almost like how how big his his legacy will i mean his characters will outlive us all oh absolutely but but you're right it, there, there's some something about it just almost doesn't feel real yet you know what i mean yeah yeah because i mean because he is such a presence you know because he <laughs> it, it is kind of hard to i mean he still has another cameo in the can i, I think two I, actually i think he's got captain yeah. marvel and uh, avengers infinity War, the next avengers movie there you go. You know, so it's even though he's gone, he still feels like he's ever present, you know, like he's he's always there. Like that's kind of special. And I and I was even um you know, I came across one of those 
mashups of just like a bunch of Stanley cameos, just a few I hadn't even seen because I don't watch Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, just like watching all of them together. Like I, I would never would have thought to sit and take the time to do that before. Like let's watch a Stanley cameo mashup. But um, yeah, just it was so fun and it just like brought back so many great memories and just kind of realizing in that moment just how how much he, his, you know, his influence, his legacy, you know, just everything he's done has impacted and inter- entertained me over the years. And so, yeah, we'll, we'll, he will be missed. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with Stan Lee this week, Stephen. Please appreciate it, man. My pleasure. Continuing our tribute to Stan Lee on the Down and Nerdy podcast, I was actually doing an interview with Vita Ayala about another project, which you'll be hearing on a future podcast. You'll hear the entire interview, but... While Vita and I were talking, we'd actually found out the news that Stanley had passed away. So I had to ask Vita, I mean, being a writer and being able to write comics, what has Stanley kind of meant to you as you go throughout your career? It's funny because I, and I said this a little bit before we started taping, but the the collaborations that Stanley was involved in were absolutely essential to my development as a person. Um, a lot of the characters that, you know, he created or he, you know, he wrote, you know, wrote were, I couldn't imagine my life without them. Um, and I mean, I will say this, like, you know, he was 95. (laughs) He had a very long and fulfilling life. He was working up until the end, which is, you know, we could, uh, and he didn't have to, (laughs) which is something that we all, uh, I think aspire to not having to do the thing, but doing it because we love it forever. So, you know, in, in, in terms of that, I'm glad that, you know, 95 is a nice long life. Um, but with, you know, not just him, but the people that he worked with and, and kind of brought into the game are household names amongst my friends and family. And so I'm grateful for that. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Continuing with our tribute to the great Stanley, of course I had to go find somebody that's done actually a lot of stuff for Marvel. You've seen a lot of his work with the Deadpool books. He's done so many other things as well. It's Riley Brown. Riley, how's it going, man? Hey, James. How are you? Pretty good. I mean, obviously wish we were talking under better circumstances, but yeah. the first <laughs> question's really simple, man. I mean, what did Stanley mean to you? Um, I mean, he... Uh, so much. Like, it's hard to into words what a legend he was and what an inspiration he was um he's always been one of my favorite comics creators creating so many uh amazing characters over the years and so many amazing comic books um and he's just one of my favorite writers just the personality and voice he'd give his characters that that all his comics were just so much fun to read you know even his his soap boxes and his columns and stuff are just so much fun to read like he he was an amazing talent, an amazing personality, and man, like I, I don't know. It's it's hard. Uh, it's hard hard getting over his loss, man. It really is, and like you said, it's really hard to put into words. And I think one of the ways I looked at it was it's almost and it's almost kind of hard to come to terms with. I mean, he was ninety five. He obviously had a great life, but at the same time, I think I mean I just kind of took for granted that he was just always always going to be there, right? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. It's weird living in a world that doesn't have Stan Lee in it, you know? Absolutely. Now, I mean, you've done, like I said, you've done so much for Marvel. And I mean, even in your other work as well, outside of Marvel, I'm sure you've been inspired by Stan. So how do you go from, as a writer, I mean, excuse me, Stan Lee, as a writer, how does he inspire you as an artist in the things that you do? Like maybe when you're drawing a Spider-Man and you've got Stan in the back of your mind. 
<laughs> uh, well, yeah, I mean, uh, he, I, I, Spider-Man specifically, um, he's definitely my favorite Spider-Man writer. Like he, his, the angle he gave to that character was just a little bit different than what anybody else has done. Cause his, his Spider-Man was a little angrier than what most people yeah. uh, write him as. Um, one of my favorite issues, it, it's just like the most teenage, angry, bitter nerd comic uh, I've ever read. It's like Spider-Man is just swinging around the city. And I think it's Human Torch's birthday party. This is a story from <laughs> like an early Spider-Man annual or something like that. And it's Human Torch's birthday party. And he, uh, I think he just got dumped by some girl or something. And he sees Human Torch with all these beautiful women uh, at his birthday party. And he's like, man, why does everyone love his, him so much? How come he has a girlfriend when I don't? I'm going to go in there. And I'm going to wreck his party. Oh, <laughs> and so wow. I do not remember it. this. <laughs> it, yeah, it's crazy. It's just Spider-Man just being angry and being a dick for no particular wow. reason. Um, and, you know, and it, it plays off of all that great... Uh, you know, crossover Marvel Universe stuff that Stan Lee really pushed for. Um, and, you know, and that's kind of like, but when you have a Spider-Man that does stuff like that, you kind of remember uh, he's, you know, he's not just the guy who says great power comes with, or with great power comes great responsibility, but that he's the guy who has to tell himself that. He, right, right. His first instinct is to be selfish and and is to be irresponsible and that's why he fucks up, which is, you know, what taught him the hard lesson that became his mantra. Um, and he's the guy that his first instinct is to not be responsible. And he has to tell himself, no, I've got to be responsible. But then kind of the more fun moments are sometimes when he act, when he does act irresponsibly. And you got a little bit more of that with uh, the Stan Lee comics. Now, you've done some writing as well uh, recently, and when you're going to write a character, especially one that's been done by Stan Lee and done so well so many times, how do you, is it almost kind of intimidating trying to put your own spin on a character like that, or is it because so many people have done that, or so many people have done it throughout the years that it's not as big of a deal, but but do you still think about Stan when you're writing a character like that? Um, I mean, well, I mean, yeah, anytime, anytime I'm writing... Uh, any character or drawing any character, I really look a lot at the um, creators who've come before me, and especially the creators that first created them, to see what were they trying to get at, what you know, what's kind of the heart of this character as they were originally envisioned. Um, and I haven't, I actually haven't done much writing with uh, any characters that Stan Lee created. Like I've mostly, like most of my writing was Deadpool and slapstick, right? right. Um, and uh, but you know, there was a couple of scenes with Spider-Man in slapstick, um, that was fun. Uh, so, but yeah, I mean, with you know, with any character, you, I really try to, yeah, I try to get at what what made them popular to begin with. What are the fans of that character, um, looking for and expecting me? You know, what are like kind of the basic bullet points I have to hit to make sure that I get the character right before I take him in my own direction. You know, something actually kind of funny just happened to you this week. You, of course, you're doing Outrage with Fabian Niciesa on Webtoon. And you get, I was seeing some comments. Did people actually feel like one of the last Outrage issues that came out were actually Stan Lee was actually part of that? Did I see that right? I, I have no idea what's going on with that. Uh, after Stan passed away in the comments section on Outrage, 
there's just all this outpouring of support of people, um, you know, saying rest in peace, Stan. Thanks for all the great comics, Stan. And, you know, I was looking at that and I was just like, I, you know, at first I just thought it was all comics fans were saying that. But then some people started saying like, wow, I can't believe that this guy's got um, a comic out even after Stanley died. And then some people were mad, like, I can't believe these guys would put out another comic after <laughs> he passed away. And I was like, wait a minute. Like, these guys... And, you know, and then people were saying, oh, give this comic a like because Stanley just passed away. And I was like, wait, I think these guys think that Stan worked on this comic somehow. <laughs> and uh, that really isn't true at all. Um, now, he had his comic on Webtoon back channel, which right. uh, as you know, is his final uh, comic strip. Um, but and it also deals with the internet and social media and stuff similar to uh, so there's similar themes to outrage, but um, he you know didn't work on our comic at all. I just to set that record straight, you can't blame Stan for any of the stuff we're doing over I, here. Yeah, I wanted I wanted to give you a chance to I wanted to give you a chance to get that out there, and I also thought it was kind of a kind of a funny misunderstanding in a week yeah. that, that has a lot of tragedy involved with it. I thought that that was kind of interesting that outrage kind of got caught up in yeah. that little thing. Yeah, I, I mean now the uh, the one outrage connection is um we'd actually been talking with tom akel who's the editor and he's the co-writer of back channel um we were talking about doing some kind of crossover and in back channel there was a uh one panel where there's a party scene and there's um an outrage is there so there (laughs) so he outrage did make a brief appearance in back channel but um other than that there's been no connection so far unless it gets us new readers in which case yeah we'll just do everything tells us to do and that's that <laughs> there you go there you go now, now riley your family man you've got little ones at home and I, I i love seeing of course we're friends on facebook i love seeing the stuff with with you and your son and discovering new things and he-man masters of the universe and stuff oh, yeah. like that so how is it for you as someone who of course grew up loving comics how is it for you Seeing seeing your son discover and experience something that Stanley created for the first time, what kind of a legacy is that for Stan to leave? Um, I it's uh, I mean, I, what kind of legacy? It's you know, in a lot of ways, the same legacy that he left for me because I was a kid also first experiencing Spider Man and watching the Amazing Spider Friends um cartoon when I was you know three years old, and uh. So it's it's a lot of fun having a two year old who is so into superheroes and um, loves all this stuff, and it's really interesting to read the comics and look at them, be able to look at them with fresh eyes from uh, a little kid's point of view, mm-hmm. um, and that's a lot of fun. And uh, it's and it's also really informative as a creator to see what kind of things, you know, what like what the little kid think about this stuff, what kind of comics are are appropriate for him, which sometimes aren't the comics that you think or something right, you know right. sometimes you you think oh yeah he loves batman and robin here's a batman comic oh wait a minute this yeah. is <laughs> this is yeah. a little creepy for him <laughs> um, but uh you know it's uh it's just the characters that were created decades ago are still so popular with um the kids these days and uh you know my son he knows all the marvel characters spider-man and hulk are two of his favorites um, he knows half the X-Men, uh, uh, you know, he loves Magneto, he, Dr. Doom, um, it, it, you know, these characters really stand the test of time and they're equally as powerful and entertaining across multiple generations. Riley, before I let you go, I wanted to ask you, is there a favorite memory that you have of Stan or a fa- favorite experience that you've had with him that really stands out to you in a moment like this? 
Um, uh, well, I've only I only actually had the pleasure of meeting him once. I'd, I'd see him in action at many comic book conventions, but um, I was only able to actually meet him face to face and talk to him once, and it was at the Baltimore Comic Convention um, a few years ago. And uh, but what was what my favorite memory of that? old experiences i met him after this award show but the best part was during the award show he gave this speech and he kind of walks up to the stage so he's got um like a cane and there's a you know uh i think maybe like a man who's like his bodyguard or something and then um this lady helping him up to the stage and he gets like right before he gets on stage and he gives them his cane and he like shoots straight up like stands up straight and tall and then leaps like he jumps he doesn't take the stairs he jumps onto stage (laughs) And he gets in front of the microphone and he is gives this huge rousing speech that is exactly like one of his, you know, narration captions from an issue of Fantastic Four or Spider-Man. Like all the enthusiasm, all the excitement, uh, you know, he, he loves using um, big words and, you know, interesting vocabulary words and uh, all that stuff. And it's like, it was just so funny. It was like, oh, wow, like that's, that's just who he is. Like he's exactly what you want Stanley to be like, and it was really, uh, it was really great to see, be able to see him do all that. Even you know, at I think he was like ninety-two years old or something at the time, he still had all that energy, and uh, that you know, that was great and really inspirational. Artist Riley Brown, thank you so much for joining us this week and sharing your thoughts about Stanley. Oh, my pleasure, man. First of all, I want to thank so many great guests this week that came on and shared their thoughts about Stan Lee because, you know, so many got the opportunity to do that on social media this week. I wanted to bring a few people on to go ahead and talk to them and give their thoughts because sometimes talking to friends about a loss like this is is something that you need to do, right? And talking to fellow fans or just, you know, people that loved Stan Lee. And this is a loss. I mean, as, as someone that didn't know Stan Lee personally, and I know that there are, there are many that didn't. I think Stephen Scott said it best. You know, you felt like you kind of did, didn't you? You felt like he was really part of your world and almost part of your family, sort of thing. And and to me, Stan Lee, as someone who you know at times myself, like I said, felt alone for being different or felt like an outcast. Stan Lee was the person that that gave you someone to look to on the page and that would that you could look at and say, they're just like me. Or they're at least close enough to what I'm going through that I feel like I can relate to them and they can relate to me. Even though this isn't someone that you're interacting with in the real world, you're seeing this in a story that's being told and you're automatically connecting. You're making a deep personal connection with a character. And Stan Lee didn't just do that once. He didn't catch lightning in a bottle. He did that over and over again and over again and continued to touch so many lives with his characters and he just continued to create and move so many people, myself included. I don't know where I would be. I probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing right now. I wouldn't get to babble on about nerd stuff every week if it wasn't for Stan Lee. Maybe my passion wouldn't have been there. Maybe the medium itself just wouldn't be large enough without Stan Lee, for all of what we're absorbing to exist. And that maybe might sound heavy-handed, but I really don't think it is. I mean, I think that Stan Lee, you could say that Stan Lee's saved lives. Stan Lee has given people something that they can look to or at least escape to 
to identify with or forget their troubles or, you know, blaze new trails for, for tolerance and inclusion and things like that. Stan Lee was doing those things decades ago before they were hashtags and buzzwords. Stan Lee was doing this. Stan Lee would get on that soapbox and talk about real things and put them in his books. And, and it just it cannot be understated how important Stan Lee was and how much his legacy will live on forever in the stories that he told previously, in the characters that he's created, and in those that he's inspired to want to keep his legacy going. He was that important. And as much, the, and one of the other things that was amazing, so amazing to me about Stan Lee is it's not only how much we loved him. It's how much he loved us back. He was so truly appreciative of his fans. You saw the video that came out just a few days ago that's been all over social media where he talks about how much he appreciated us, the fans. And it was su- it's such a mutual admiration that it's amazing. And, and his inspiration goes beyond the characters that he created as well. Like I was saying earlier, the guy was near 40 or beyond 40 when he created some of his most important characters. And his wife pushed him to keep going. And that's when he wrote Fantastic Four number one. And I'm sitting here getting ready to turn 40 years old and thinking to myself, whereas when some people turn 40, you know, you wonder where you're at in your life. And then as I'm turning 40, I could think at least professionally, there's a chance that my life hasn't even started yet. And that's okay because look what Stan Lee was able to do from 40 to 95. What he was able to create, this this vast universe and this incredible array of stories will never ever be overlooked and will serve as an inspiration for me and for so many people, at least for the rest of my life. It will be an inspiration for me, and I cannot, for not just myself, for, for my son, for future generations too, I cannot thank Stanley enough for the contribution that he made to my life and the lives of so many people in my, in my life that are important to me, that I love, and I want to see do great things. Stan Lee was a major, major part of that, and he's transcended so many other creators before him and after him, I don't think it's heavy-handed at all to say there will never be another Stan Lee. And that might be sad, but that's okay because that's how amazing Stan Lee was. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. If you want more, you can always go to downandnerdypodcast.com. Keep sharing your thoughts with Stan Lee with us on social media as well. Facebook.com slash downandnerdy at downandnerdy757 on Twitter. And Instagram as well. I hope that Stan Lee would appreciate these words that I try to say every week. You never have to apologize for being a nerd. So let your fan flag fly. Be good to your fellow nerds. And you know I've got to say it. Excelsior. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story. Dark Dice. A horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama. Where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is now what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. 
As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. 